take a couple weeks and address the issue of a fun topic, church government. Isn't that interesting? What's, how we operate, how decisions are made, and we're gonna, just going to take two weeks to do so. It's not going to be covering everything. Actually, we'll touch some of this more in the fall, but um, how we operate. So I'm going to ask you a question. Um, with some variations, there's basically three types of church governments. So I'll tell you what they are, and then I want you to turn to somebody and inform them of what kind of church government this church has, or take a wild guess, okay? So it's, uh, there's the three forms are Episcopal government, the Presbyterian government, and the congregational government. Episcopal, Presbyterian, congregational. So turn to somebody, inform them. Okay, all right, good. The word, uh, the word episcopon is a Greek word. Um, it's where we get, of course, the, the name episcopal from. In some of your Bibles, it gets translated either as overseeing, overseer, or the word bishop um, in the New Testament. And generally, an episcopal form of church government is a, is a hierarchical church government with one person at the top, and there's all different layers of that, but it's generally one person. Um, the uh, presbyteros is the Greek word, which we get the word Presbyterian from, of course. In your Bibles, it's usually translated the word elder, and uh, we'll see that in a little bit. And that's a form of church government in general, where you have a plurality of elders who oversee the, the, the government, the, the decisions of the church. And then lastly is congregational. That comes from the idea of if, if if there's a priesthood of all believers, should not the church as a whole um, hold authority in the church? And so the decision-making authority re- resides in the members of the church. Um, a lot of Baptist churches function in a congregational form of church government. Oftentimes, um, and the words get confusing, by the way, if you go from church to church. For, so for instance, uh, some Baptist churches will have the word elder applies just to the pastor, and then the uh, leadership board are called deacons, but really the church holds membership, uh, holds authority as voting members. And they vary. Some churches vote on just basic things like the budget and uh, calling a pastor. Other uh, churches, I grew up in one of those where they voted on everything. So if they're going to change the blinds in the back, they'll have a vote on what color the blinds are. It makes for a very interesting church experience. Um, the Vineyard, although not a Presbyterian church, Um, We do function under a Presbyterian form of church government, often referred as an elder-led church. Having said that, um, we have elders here, we have pastors here, and believe it or not, we have bishops here. So um, if you're confused, um, great. We'll walk through this and try to understand the way um, God has chosen um, to organize his bride. So a couple of preliminary comments first, just to um, put some foundation here, because we're not going to cover everything. I just want to share a few things. One, when we start talking about church leadership, it stirs up a lot of stuff. Um, there are those who have served either as uh, full-time ministers here, or you've been in leadership somewhere here or somewhere else, and the church body has brought a lot of pain to you. 
We have the other side of that as well, where you've, or maybe it's even a parent or a, a relative that was in that position, and they've just a lot of wounds from that. You have the flip side as well, that we have people, many of us, who have been members in churches, and the leaders of those churches brought us a lot of pain. And so when we start talking about it, um, those things get stirred up. And I've got a wide variety of that in my own life. So those things um, can be stirred up in the midst of this. Um, second of all, here at the Vineyard, um, our elders are all what we call qualified men. They're specifically all the elders here are men. We believe the scriptures require that limitation. And, and I'm not going to go into the basis of why our leaders are all men here. In September, we're going to do a whole series um, on God's design for men and women in the church and home. And I will, um, in detail, walk through why we've landed in that place here at this church. But just for now, understand that that's how we have it here. And then number three, there's other layers of church. Elders are not the only leaders in a church. Um, there are multiple layers. We have deacons. Um, we call them here church ministry leaders. There's all different kinds of layers of leadership. We're just going to focus on this one, one area of eldership for these two weeks. And then lastly, not always the case, but in general, the way the leadership goes is the way the church goes. The way the leadership goes is the way you go look, look at the Old Testament. You can just see that. That's just completely evident there. Um, we've seen trouble and ruin and harm to people, the church in general, and to God's name in the world that happens when leaders fail and when leaders lead poorly. Um, and we've all seen that. So what we address here, um, like when we're talking about elders, what's the, it matters. It matters. It matters to us. It matters to our health. It matters to God's kingdom. Um, so um, it's, it's for us to pay attention to. By the way, um, up until uh, a little while ago, if you looked up um, who, who the elders are in our church on our website, it just, it just had a little empty pictures. So there's actually uh, on the website, if you go to it underneath uh, who we are, uh, the elders are listed. Their pictures are there. Um, and there's a little bio about each one so you can get to know them a little bit. We need to know who they are. And if you click on any of their pictures, you can, you'll actually you can send an email to any of them. So um, just be aware that that is there. And you can go on the website and, and check it out. So let me pray. And then we're going to we'll begin this little short series here um, this morning. Lord, we um, gather under you and, uh, and wait on you and wait on your spirit, our, our only teacher. We'd ask that um, you would help us um, in allowing the word to inform our hearts, um, stir up what you need to stir up in us this morning, instruct us where we need to learn, um, help us to see your word clear. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the plan for the next two weeks, and it'll be up on the screen here, just so you know where, where we're going, where we're not going. Uh, first, a couple of general reminders about the Bride of Christ, and then uh, that'll be this morning, and then also this morning I'm going to talk about elders, um, who are they, in terms of what are they like. We're talking about characteristics, um, not specifically who their names are, but what are they like as people, what are they supposed to be like, and the scriptures tell us what those qualifications are. Next week we're going to talk about what do they do? People go, so what do they do anyways, you know? Um, and so we'll talk about specifically scripture lays out exactly what they are supposed to do. And then secondly, how they do it. Leaders can do lots of right things and do them in a very wrong way. And the scriptures are very, very clear on how the leadership in the church is to carry out their role with the church body. And then lastly, next week, I'll address just a few of the nuts and bolts. How are they chosen here? Um, what goes on with that? 
And then also, what is the church's responsibility to the leadership of the church as well? So it goes both ways. So that's what we're going to do um, here for the next two weeks. So we'll start out here, some general reminders about the bride of Christ. And the first and probably the most important is that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its savior. When you get a person in leadership in a church who thinks that they're the savior of the church, you have trouble. Um, Christ is this, the head of the church. It says the same thing in Colossians 1.18, Ephesians 4.15 and 16. 1 Peter 5.4, Jesus is called the chief shepherd. It's a word for pastor, the chief shepherd of the church. It is his bride. We belong to him. It's his body. And as such, uh, he alone determines its mission, its values, the way it operates, and the way it relates to each other. Um, Beware if it happens here or anywhere else where there's more talk about that church or its leaders than there is about Jesus then we have missed the boat. We're, we're in a dangerous place to be. And it happens all the time, and it happens very easily. We should be known primarily for the one who is the head of his church, which is Jesus alone. Second of all, all members of Christ's body are ministers. So if somebody ever says, so what do you do? Well, I'm a minister. You can say that. Um, all members of Christ's body are ministers. First Peter 2.9 says, Speaking to all of us who know Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's very own people. And Revelation 1, 5, and 6 says, He loves us, and he has freed us from our sins by his blood. And I love this. He's made each of us, and in particular it's talking here about corporately, kingdom, a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Um, since Christ came, we do not need a, a priest to come before God anymore. We have access. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. It says the man, Christ Jesus. And so we are all ministers in that sense. Um, interesting, we'll talk about this later. The um, terminology is confusing. And churches use terminology all sorts. Of, so one church will use elder one way. Their churches use elder another way. We generally, in the evangelical church, use the word pastor to describe the guy who's paid to be at the church. My job gets called pastor, but technically that's not really a correct way to use the word. Um, we, we exchange the word pastor and minister. So if I'm talking to somebody and they ask me what I'm doing, I'll say I'm a minister. The fact is, we are all ministers. Um, it gets used as an office and a position, it happens, but that's really not the correct way to use the word according to the scriptures. You and I are all ministers, and particularly in Ephesians and Corinthians, makes it very, very clear that we're all to exercise our gifts in accordance with his word in order to see the full functioning of the body. So we all have that role together. And then lastly, God himself, God has established his leadership for his people. God has established a plan for leading his people, and particularly, um, we believe, a plurality of leadership for his people. Titus 1.5, I won't read these, but you can look them up sometime. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Acts 14.23. Acts 20.17. Philippians 1, 1 are just a couple of the places. Um, a few of the passages indicate, as it talks about the church leaders, it always talks about them as more than one. 
Um, so when Paul meets on the beach with the, the uh, elders from Ephesus, there's multiple elders with him. When um, he, he tells Timothy to go to Crete and appoint elders, it's plural, more than one. Um, there's danger when it's one person. Um, and there are leaders, and although we are all members and ministers, there God has ordained a, an ordering of leadership within his church. The elders, which, which we call them here, they're called to serve the church in submission to Christ, and the church is to carry out the work of the church in submission to the leaders. So there's a leadership structure that God has designed to function to make the church work according to his plan, and that leadership is a plurality of leaders. Um, so here we go. Elders, who are they? In other words, what are they like? What are the qualifications um, for being an elder? Um, and take note that although there's a few traits that are very specific to the leadership, almost all the ones we walk through today are all things that we should all be moving towards. They're all things that should show up in all the people of God. There's three key words um, we want to understand. We've talked about them a little bit. The first one is the word bishop. And some of your Bibles, it'll be the word overseer. As I said, it comes from the Greek word episcopus. And it's used in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. And it talks about the qualifications of leadership. It calls them overseers or bishops. It says, let the bishop, and then it lays out the qualifications. Um, so next week, I'm going to wear a hat because um, I am one of the bishops. Um, it shows up again in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Titus begins talking about elders, but then it talks about the same man. It uses the word for bishop there. Um, both passages there are talking about the qualities of leaders in the church, and they're called overseers or bishops. Um, so if anybody says, does your church have bishops? The answer is yes, we do, in interesting enough. Um, second key word is elders. As I said, it comes from the Greek word presbyteros. Um, it can refer to two different things. One, it can refer to the aged. Um, I'm not sure what that cutoff line is, but to the aged, so who, who that is, you know who you are. Um, it can often refer to, it can be uh, those who are bearded um, or the gray-headed ones. So um, that's how the word often gets used. It's used many, many times in Scripture. So um, like I think it's in Timothy or Titus, it says the, the elders, the older men, this is what they're supposed to be like. They're supposed to pour their life into the younger men. It's using the word for elders, for aged, those who are older. Um, but it can also be used as an office. So about 20 times in the New Testament, the word elder is used in regards to an office. It has nothing to do with age. It has to do with a, a position of leadership within the church, and that's how it gets used here in Titus 1.5. And then the third word is pastor. It's poimain is the Greek word. Um, it can mean a shepherd. Or it can mean shepherding if it's used like a verse, it's something an, an action. Um, so a pastor is one who shepherds. And on some levels, we're all supposed to be shepherds of one another. Um, it's, uh, and yet it, it uses here the words, um, along with bishop and elder, is the word pastor. Of note, as I mentioned earlier, the, the church uses the term pastor. So we'll say Pastor Mike or Pastor Chris at times to describe a staff role or a paid leader. Um, 1 Timothy 5.17 says, let the elders who rule well um, be given a double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. There was apparently some within the church body who gave extra time and attention to those tasks, and the church is to care for them. And um, as time goes by, we've, we've tended to call those the ones that are pastors. But the truth is, uh, all elders are pastors. 
All elders are pastors. As a matter of fact, we'll see next week that probably the most key role a, an elder has is to be a shepherd. It's the overriding role that they're called to have. So, as I said, I get called pastor, and I'll probably continue, um, and I'm seen as a pastor here, but in actuality, all the elders are pastors. They all are called to shepherd. Um, so, what do I, um, and let me just say, why do I say they're all pastors? Let me just uh, lay this out so we understand these. It's interesting, we have these three key terms, right? We've got bishop, we have elder, and pastor. Well, how are they related? The three key words there are all used interchangeably, when talking about leaders in the church, let me show you that. Acts 20.17 and Acts 20.28, as the elders from Ephesus are gathered on the beach, um, all three terms are used. Those guys who gather on the beach, they're called elders in that passage, they're called overseers, and they're called pastors, all three terms in that passage. Again, in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, it uses both the word elder and it uses the word bishop and talking about exactly the same office, so that the words get used interchangeably. The Timothy passage uses overseer, and yet, as we'll see, the lists between Timothy and Titus are the same. It's talking about the same people. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, it uses all three terms. When Peter says, I exhort the elders, or presbyteros, among you to shepherd or pastor the flock, and they are to exercise oversight, which is the word episcopus there. So how do they relate? In summary, I think I've got it up here. It's helpful to think of it this way. Um, when we think of the word bishop or overseer, that word emphasizes what do they do. There's oversight. There's, there's jobs to do. And that word emphasizes their function. When we use the word elder, it emphasizes who they are. What kind of people are they? Their character. When we use the word pastor, it emphasizes the manner in which they do those things. Shepherds care for the flock. And there's a way that they do it and a way they go about it. So next week we'll look at their function as overseers and also the way they're to serve as pastors. This morning we're going to look at their character, who they are. So that's the three words. They get used interchangeably. Um, so, um, but we'll, we'll use the word elders, okay, for the rest of this morning. And usually as we talk about it, we'll use the word elders because we're familiar with it. So as I'm going to read through the qualifications, I'm going to read the two passages here, and then I'm going to walk through them. A few of them I'm just going to mention because they're pretty self-explanatory. Some of them I'm going to give more time to just because they're more confusing. But let me read. I'm going to read from 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and then I'll read Titus 1, 5 through 9. These are the two passages that, um, at least in a concise way, describe the qualifications of those who would lead um, in God's church. The saying is true. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And he must not be a recent convert, or he gets puffed up with conceit, and he's going to fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by those on the outside, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. And then from Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, 
and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but rather he's to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And he must hold firm to the trustworthy word that has been taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and that he may also be able to rebuke those who would contradict it. So let's walk through these. First one is above reproach. This is uh, basically an overarching statement that covers everything else. So he's kind of saying an elder uh, leader is to be above reproach. And you say, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to list what those are. And the following ones, I'll list exactly what does it look like to be above reproach. And that's what the remaining items will be. Um, It doesn't, of course, to mean faultless or there will be no leaders in the church. So um, it's it's not about that. It just means um, there's no glaring sins. So if we get up here next week and go, hey, we are considering so-and-so to be a future elder here at the vineyard, and everybody's going, what? you got to be kidding. No way. Um, as in, we all know what that person's like. That's a problem, okay? There's no glaring sins, ongoing things in your life that we could identify. Take note that as we go through this list, all the qualifications, except for the one able to teach, all have to do with character. Um, they're not about abilities. The... the um, the way God has designed his church is not by people with great ability. It's people who are dependent on Christ and who um, have their characters developing in such a way that Christ can have a hold of their life. So um, they're not some requirements to check off, but rather almost all of them except for one have to do with character. Um, we don't bring on men because they're great businessmen or have some, some financial savvy or, or deep pockets or they're some gifted administrator, which, by the way, can all be good things and helpful to a church. But that's not what makes them qualified. Um, And I've seen what happens. I've seen boards that are comprised of just those kinds of people that were chosen just for those reasons, and the church does not get led well. It may run like a business sometimes, but doesn't always get run well um, because it has. um, we ought to look at what are they like, not just what they can do. And a man in church can be an awesome businessman, but inside, it's just not there, and they're not called to lead. Um, so we're looking at what kind of men are they. The first one here, it says, uh, it says a husband of one wife. Some of your translations would, might say a man of one woman or a, a, a one-woman kind of man. Um, there's different expressions here. It's a, it's a really unusual Greek phrase here. Um, but husband of one wife actually misses the, the Greek idea here. We're talking about character, not about checklists. Does this person meet these qualifications? Um, Like I said, it's more correct to say a man of one woman would be the actual uh, literal way that we'd read the Greek in this particular time. Think of it in terms of character. If we don't, then there's three other possibilities, and these all come up. So let me just mention them because the questions come up. Does it mean not having multiple wives? So, by the way, um, I'm not aware that any of the elders here or have three or four wives in other cities at the time. Um, if they do, they're in big trouble. But um, it can mean not having multiple wives, if, if it could possibly be taken that way. Secondly, it could be taken as they must be married, because it says the husband of one wife. Does that mean that they have to be married? Or third, it means that they can only have had one wife. 
So it brings up the issue of, of men who are widows um, or if they've been divorced before. The problem with taking it that way is actually the Greek phrase doesn't reword really it that way, but the bigger problem is that they don't quite fit because we're talking about character. Uh, polygamy was actually completely frowned upon in the New Testament, although it happened. Um, they, they would never have thought about even putting that as a requirement because nobody would be doing that when they would have not even considered it. It can't be that they must be married because we know in the New Testament of several unmarried men who were elders in the church. Timothy and Titus, right off the bat, are two of them who were not married men, um, but they were working as elders. Um, and it, uh, it can't mean necessarily only have had one wife because that would do two things. One, it excludes those men whose wife have passed away. And the New Testament makes very clear that they are free to remarry. They, are, they have the freedom to remarry. They would then have had two wives that wouldn't fit there. And it doesn't necessarily mean that those who have been divorced cannot be an elder um, because the scriptures in some cases gives freedom to remarry. So along the area of divorce, which often comes up, the question comes, can a divorced man be an elder in a church? And the answer is it all depends on that situation. Everyone's got to be taken individually. So is it, in some cases, can divorce, would a divorced man be excluded from being an elder in a church? And the answer is yes. In other cases, depending on if, it's, if, if it aligns with the biblical pat, the uh, acceptable reasons and it aligns with Scripture and they've been taken and looked at carefully, each case has to be looked at in light of the biblical text. The passage here is talking about a condition of the heart. It's talking about a character issue in regards to women particularly. And it means this, does he have a heart of fidelity? If the man is married, is he faithful and committed to his wife? John Stott says this about the passage, he is faithful to his wife. He's a man of unquestioned morality. He's above reproach in the areas of sex and marriage. It includes not being flirtatious, which would, be, would, would, would disqualify a person. It's not being a man of one woman, of a heart of that way. He's above reproach in his relationship, not just with his wife, but with all women. Um, we have seen especially, and this has gone on ever, as long as the church has been around, but especially even recently, I think we're just more and more aware of it. Um, the ruin that comes to churches when their leaders are unfaithful in this area. It happens over and over and over again. When there's adulter, adultery and a, a pastor or a leader and what happens to a church and the pain that comes there, um, but it's not just those distinct immoral activities. It's the way leaders treat women as leaders. And they, wait, they speak to them and treat them in ways that grieve the heart of God through comments, through jokes, through thinly veiled innuendos. Um, it happens over and over again. I, I find it, um, you know, in that with so many things being called, men being called out for the way they've been acting in place of the workplace. Um, if I remember right, this is six months ago or so, the, uh, they decided in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill that they're going to have a, they're putting together a kind of a, a, a seminar or something that everybody working on Capitol Hill has to go through so they understand sexual harassment and understand to, so they don't do the wrong thing. Do we, are we in such a bad place as a country that grown men after have, have to go through a seminar to know how to act appropriately. It's just really sad. But the fact is, it happens in the church as well. And, and you can read it almost every single week. Um, another pastor, another leader, who you discovered just made little comments, 
acted in ways in the workplace, put himself in inappropriate situations, and has this brought discord and ruin to the church? As I said, there's been well-known evangelical leaders and pastors as who didn't commit some immoral act, like committed adultery, but they violated God's standards. They said demeaning things to women. They're flirtatious in the workplace, and now their ministries are tarnished. Their lives are often shipwrecked, and there's a score of people that are wounded by it. Um, so is it relevant what Paul says today? And the answer is yes, it is. Um, what's the condition of a man's heart in relationship to his relationship with women? And if it's not in order, guess what? They should not be in a position of leadership. It just brings ruin. Um, third one here, temperate. They're to be temperate. Usually we, we think of that in terms of alcohol, um, but it just means to not be controlled by things. By the way, we can all be controlled by things, can't we? We can be tr- controlled by things that are really ugly and not good. We can be controlled by things that are good as well. Um, simple things like eating and exercise, a hobby, all good things, but they can dominate our life, as well as those things that are, are not good that begin to take root in our place. It just means that the people who lead the church should not be controlled by things. They should be controlled by the Spirit of God. Next, it says sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Um, some translators, uh, your Bibles might say sensible, uh, prudent, honorable. Interesting, we don't use those words anymore. Um, they're really good words. Um, it means that he's clear-headed, clear-headed. That's why it uses the word sober-minded. When we've had too much to drink, we're not clear-headed, right? You can't think clear. It says uh, that one who leads the church must be clear-headed. What that means is that a leader can talk through the hard things and hard situations, and he can do it carefully and wisely and not driven by emotion. That's, to me, sober-minded. He's to be self-controlled inside. He's to be honorable. That means that what you see is actually who he is. Um, That takes some work sometimes, right? We can cover ourselves up pretty well. What you see is what he is. The actual Greek words here refer to an an inner discipline and an outer discipline. An elder's outer expressions are supposed to reflect an inner peace and an inner discipline in their life. Statement is, how can we oversee others if we can't rule over our own hearts, our own lives, if there's not discipline there? Interesting, um, in uh, particularly smaller churches, as you drive around town, I'd encourage you to pray for pastors. As you pass by churches, there's a lot of churches here. There's a pastor who's there, he's the only person there, and I've seen this a lot. And we're, we're talking about elders in general here, but let me just refer to pastors, guys who are full-time in that. Um, they are unsupervised. They make up their own schedules. There's nobody watching over their shoulder, and they are targets for the enemy. Um, it's, I've seen it's, it's easy to waste time. It's easy to, to, to do what they want to do, and nobody will ever know it, and it happens all the time. They are targets for the enemy. They're, they're called to be disciplined um, in their lives. That's what it means to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectful. Be praying for them because they're under attack. Next, it says to be hospitable. That doesn't mean that the, an elder in a church has to be great at barbecue. Um, yeah, yeah. Or to set a beautiful table. Um, 
which, by the way, are awesome things to do, and I aspire to both those things. Um, the word here is actually philoxenia. It means the love of strangers. The leaders in the church are to love the lost, to have a heart for the lost, and they're to do something about it. And does the leader in your church and the leaders in your church, do they care for the lost? And does their concern for their souls show up in doing something about it? They care about the lost. Next, it says they're able to teach. This is the one item in that list that's not actually talking about character, but it's actually talking about a function. It does not mean that they're necessary to be in the pulpit. Remember, they're, but they're shepherds. In that role, they have to be men who point people to the word of God. Constantly point people to the word of God. 1 Timothy 4, 6 says, A good minister is one who's nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. 2 Timothy 2 says, The Lord's servant should not be quarrelsome, but kind and able to instruct. And as we already saw, I, I mentioned the verse earlier, there are some who in those roles who labor at the preaching and teaching, and there are some that don't, but they're all supposed to be able to point to the word and able to instruct. We'll see next week that the elders are called to guard the doctrine and the beliefs of a church, to keep the church grounded biblically. And to do that, they have to be men who know the word and can teach it and can share it. First Timothy uh, 2 uh, and 2 Timothy, they're told to be men of the word who are able to pass that along to others also. And so when it says able to teach, the, the leaders in the church they don't have to know everything about the word. None of us do. Um, but they ought to be able to find out the answer. They ought to be able to sit in the word. They ought to be people that are in the word on a regular basis, and they can point people to the word, and they keep the word central in our church. Next, it says they're not addicted to wine. Um, some of these things are going, I mean, isn't that kind of a, a no-brainer, right? That's probably not a good idea. Uh, but it's there because it's, it happens. Um, if the elders are to be clear-minded, they're able to be um, sober in their thinking and in their interactions with people, not carried away by emotions. They'll be able to teach. Too much alcohol does what? It gets in the way. Too much alcohol gets in the way. Um, it, interesting, t the word temperate we saw earlier can mean not intoxicated. Um, and, and I would expand on that. I think he, Peter Paul means more here. Anything that clouds judgment falls under this category. Is there anything that clouds their judgment? Um, they are to cast it aside. And it can be all sorts of different things, but anything that would cloud the judgment and control a leader is to be cast aside. Um, on the issue of, of alcohol, by the way, it is not a small problem among leaders and churches. So um, that's why Paul has got it here, because it gets in the way. Next it says, not violent. The word is used in your Bible is pugnacious. It's, it's a good scrabble word if you can ever make it happen. Um, but the rather, it says they're to be the opposite. They're to be gentle and they're to be peaceable. Um, it can mean, some places, it means they're not a brawler. Um, by the way, you can brawl with your fists. You can brawl with your words. You can brawl with your attitudes. They all work. doesn't mean that you can't enroll in martial arts, by the way, because um, I love the martial arts, but... Uh, you use them in a proper way. Um, so it can mean that one who does not strike out, one who does not strike out. Like I said, you can strike out with fists. Um, I've actually seen that happen in a church. Um, but you can strike out with words. 
We all know people who sometimes have a place of leadership and they're argumentative. Not just wanting to wrestle through things, but they're argumentative. They make an issue. They stir up strife with the way they argue. In seminary, as during in-between classes, um, seminary students would sit around and argue about theology. And some of it was good. as like wrestling through things. But there were some who wanted to make it was argumentative. It was just this, um, this fighting argumentative attitude. And I thought, those churches are going to suffer because it's a stirring up of strife. It's, this, it's, it's not peaceable. It's not gentle. I love reading about old country preachers, particularly the, the circuit riders in the 1860s. There was one guy named Peter Cartwright, and he would get up on a platform, they'd build it, and he'd be out in the Old West, and he would start preaching, and people would come, and there'd be these drunk cowboys, and they would kind of mock him and laugh and heckle him. You know what he'd do? He'd get down there, he'd go and punch him out until he knocked, got, knocked him out, and then he'd go back up on the pulpit and start preaching again. I'm serious. It was normal. That's not what they're to be like. Where I came from before, I remember in the midst of some really difficult times at church, I walked in the church office one day, and two men who I loved, the pastor and one of the elders, um, they're in the office. They're both as red as can be, and they were screaming at each other. And I remember the pastor took his fist, and he just slammed it down the desk as hard as he could. I remember I was, like, shaking. Um, that disqualifies a person from leading. That's not what's supposed to happen. Um, but it's more than that, just not being argumentative, one who does not stir up strife. And the, the opposite it gets here says they're to be gentle and peaceable. Gentle and peaceable. By the way, it doesn't mean that they avoid conflict, because that's a danger as well. But when they enter into conflict, they do it in a peaceable and a gentle way that exercises control and that shows care for this flock. That's what they're supposed to do. And I can tell you that is not always true of leaders in churches. And there are those who are quite different from that, and it brings a lot of pain. Next it says they're not greedy for gain. That can be gain of money, because it says they're not lovers of money. Also greedy for gain as in status, position. Um, They're not to be greedy for that. Money should, in status, should not have a hold of their lives, should not control them. They, They understand they're stewards of what God has given them, and are stewards of, of what God has given the church. The, uh, the church I came from before, um, I came shortly this afternoon, but the, the founding pastor there had been there, a, a good guy, had been there a number of years. Um, he decided to buy a house and didn't have the money, so he took about $20,000 from the church, used it for a down payment on his home without telling anybody. Um, one of the families had kids in my youth group when I got there. They said, oh, Chris, I was there that, the week that the pastor got up and did the I took the money speech. <laughs> um, and, he, and he was removed from the church at, at that point, um, not handling it like it was supposed to handle it. Um, when that story happens over and over again. Um, 2 Timothy 3.2 says, There will come a day when men will be lovers of self, boastful, and lovers of money. And an elder is to be in contrast. This doesn't mean you can't have finances. You can't even be wealthy. It's okay. It's what do you do with that? Does it have a hold of your heart? Or even status? Is there just desire for status? Interesting, in the Old Testament, the priests and judges over and over and over again were accused of what? Taking money, taking bribes. Um, on a side note, um, I know we all flinch when you read in the paper or on your tablet or whatever of a 
a pastor of some church who's requesting $100 million donations for his new private jet. And we're going, you got to be kidding me, you know. Um, and we all go, that's kind of foolish. But the fact is, um, money gets in the way of a lot of leaders. You've got leaders in churches, and this church, as far as me, takes care of me wonderfully. But um, there's pastors who are struggling so much, it puts them in the place of temptation, and it becomes a focal point. You have other places, and the Bible doesn't outline this for us, and so we can't say right and wrong, but there are churches where pastors are making millions. And I'll tell you, it's dangerous. It's dangerous because you're not really open to what God has for you when you've got that amount coming in. I grew up in a, a home with a great deal, and I tell you, it infiltrates a heart so fast. You become dependent on it, and it's not a good thing. And it says here, the leaders in a church, they're not to be greedy for gain of any kind. They're not to be lovers of money. Nextly, it says they're, they're to um, have, I'll just summarize by saying, having well-ordered homes. Paul used the term for household both to describe the church as well as a leader's home. The context of the home and the church in 1 Timothy 3. A man's leadership in his home must be considered as we consider his place of leading in the church. The home context is a training ground and a proving ground for the leading in the context of the church as well. Two things to note here. Number one, one has to do with a husband's leadership in the home. And I'm just going to mention this because it's here, but I'm going to teach fully on this in September, so I'm not going to go through it all here. But interesting here, the word used that an elder, a leader, is to manage his home. The word here, the Greek word, is actually the word for leader. Um, it's not... It's important to understand when we think of leader, we think in terms of boss who's in charge. That's not the New Testament idea of leader um, here, but that's the word it gets used. Um, it can be equally translated as having authority over or to stand before or to preside. And then the word is modified by the word to care for. They're to lead in a careful way. We all know um, maybe dads or, or um, who who led their homes, but they did not lead carefully. Um, they led with an iron hand in ways that were damaging and hurtful. And that's not what he's talking about here. Husbands are called here to take the primary responsibility for the direction of their homes, to manage their homes well. And they're to lead with care in the way Christ leads. And Paul says this shows up. How do we know if that's happening? He says it shows up as you look at the home, what's going on in the home. They're to be well-ordered. It doesn't mean all the toys are put away, by the way. Um, it has to do with people. When his children are not out of control, but are exemplified by respect and obedience, not because of a heavy-handed ruling, and not by an attitude of being in charge, that's not the picture, but by being an example of the Lord, it's a good indication that he can lead in the church as well. The main question that comes up oftentimes is, does children have to be believers? Because Titus talks about children who believe. The word for believers there is uh, pistis. It can mean belief, and it can mean faithful. Um, are they believers or faithful? Um, the first Timothy passage says, he must manage his own household well with care or dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then Titus says the children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Those are strong words, by the way. It's like, man, my kids are ever under the charge of debauchery. I don't think so, hopefully. Um, Interesting, the two passages are parallel passages, two passages that say the same thing in two different ways. So we put them together to understand what Paul is trying to tell us here. Most interpreters understand this to mean that if an elder has children in the home, they should be marked by submission and obedience 
in the best of ways, not because they're afraid. By submission and obedience, they're under control, not immoral. Um, we don't have control over our kids' faith. But if an elder has children still under the authority of the home, and they're out of control, and they're disobedient, and they're creating chaos, the question comes, should that elder step down from that role? And my answer would be yes. Until those things are put in order, because the, what's going on in the home um, identifies their ability to care for and manage the church. Remember, this statement has to do with an elder's character. And so if you want to know what they're like, go in their home. <laughs> See what goes on. Watch what takes place over the period of time, what's going on in their own home. And that will help us understand if they're able to care for the church. Last two here, they're mature in the faith. By the way, the Christian life is never about getting to a point and we've got there. Christian life is about growth. And growth happens for a whole life. Um, and I don't think that God's real concerned about where we are in that growth process as though there's a ladder. It doesn't work that way. He just wants his people to be growing. I've got a sunflower going in my garden right now. One, I planted like 10 seeds and one came up. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it was like this tall and then this tall. And all of a sudden, two days later, it was like this tall. And then it's, and this is bizarre. It's like, man, what goes on with that? They, we, we grow at different ways. But an elder, a leader in the church, to be mature in the faith. But it means they're not a new believer. That they have a, a history of faithfulness. They've developed and are showing the disciplines of what it takes to grow. And that we can see them and identify them in a person. Question comes out, what about age? Does that mean that they have to be a certain age? And the answer to that is not. This is not an age restriction. This is a matter of the heart. So the word here, elder, is not used about age here. I was talking to a, a, a younger man uh, a little while ago and about thinking of, have you, have you ever considered a place of leadership in the church? And he goes, I don't think I'm old enough. And um, I'm like, it has nothing to do with age. As to what are we seeing in your life? What is the pattern? Where's the faithfulness? Have we seen it in your life? It's about maturity and patterns. It does say that there's a danger when we're young, because when we're young, we get that role, we can get puffed up and prideful. That can happen at any age, by the way, um, scriptures say, but it's to be cautious about that. In other words, they've shown, they need to have shown a history of faithfulness and an even keel in terms of their walk with Christ. And then lastly, the last one here, it says they have a good reputation with the outside world. Um, what we should do sometimes is say, uh, it'll be elders, it'll be elders, take your, take your church to work day. And um, somebody in the church goes with, uh, with each of the leaders wherever they go for a day. Um, uh, if you were to follow them around for a day, the people that he's in contact with, what would they say? That's the issue here. Do they see the person as a man who loves and serves his family, who works hard at his job, or is he the slacker at the, on the business? Is he reliable, or does he show up late all the time? And, and uh, those kinds of things. Does what he says he's going to do, does it get done? Do they see him as serving his community? It's not just what people think here, but you know you can cover up the truth for a while, but in the course of life in all different places, it, thinks it shows up, what we're like. And the idea here is that if we were to go out in the world those who lead our church, the way the world sees them, they may, they may disagree with their faith, but they would mark them as faithful people and hard workers and people that they would respect in that sense. And so they have a good reputation with the outside world. And um, I have known some elders in the past who seem to be great in church, but if you, their job would never rehire them if they got rid of them, never. 
because they weren't good workers and they weren't unfaithful in their work and they just didn't apply themselves. That's a, that's a sign, a danger sign for being a leader in the church. Let me wrap up with Hebrews 13. I'm going to read two verses here, 13, uh, verse 7 and 17. <clears throat> By the way, if you have any questions about these things, like I said, next week I'm going to, we'll, we'll fill this out a lot more, but any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, or better yet, go to one of the other elders in the church here, ask them, and they will, they will uh, respond to you. But let me read Hebrews 13. Verse 7 says, Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, which should cause all those who are leading and those who would aspire to it to stop and consider the two. Where are we at? Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Interesting, he says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account so let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Strong thing. It says those who God has put in a place of leadership actually keep watch over our souls. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, it says, We beseech you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them highly in love because of their work. As we close today, the, the enemy does not want the church at large by the way, the church at large is not seen very well in the world today. And much of that is because of those who lead. Um, and he does not want this body to flourish. And the best way he can do that is he can do damage within the leadership. He can bring ruin in their character. Um, I don't even think that this, the Satan would want to get rid of the vineyard. I think it, it's, it's, he's more effective just to make us of no consequence in the world anymore. And he can do that by attacking the leaders, and he does. I know Lisa and I, on a few occasions, um, this was a few months ago, I remember we were just kind of struggling a little bit, and it didn't feel like a very good couple of weeks, and I remember Lisa goes, says, I, th I think this is an attack of the enemy. And because the enemy does not want leaders to be pursuing the Lord and developing their life, and so he wants to bring ruin there, because he brings ruin there, um, he brings ruin to God's kingdom work by doing so at the leaders and going after their character. He desires to bring into their lives the enemy, bring into the leaders sin and pride and compromise and a lack of care about the words they use and the things they say to bring trouble into their homes. And I guarantee that he is hard at work doing that all the time. That's what he does. And so the question comes, um, do you pray for the elders in the church here? Because they, they are in need of prayer. As we pray for our worship leaders who have a front, uh, a front of the line for us, we do so. So also we should be praying for those um, who are charged with keeping watch over our souls. Um, so we had a number of the, the elders were here last night. We prayed with them. But if those elders, including myself, that are here this morning, if you guys would stand up, please. I ask you to stand. Got a few of you guys here. And what I'd like to ask, I wonder if I, if I could see if, if two or three people be willing just to stand up and nice and loud so we can all, all hear. If you would pray over the leadership of this church, ask God's care for them and his abiding presence with them. So if people for, would do that, and then I will close. <clears throat>